given our academic and activist backgrounds, like we're completely in alignment with having deep roots to what we're creating, having, you know, a solid foundation. And at the same time, understanding that the spaces that we moved in for so long, as electrifying and as exciting as it was being academics, working with students, working within that system, there was so much negativity. I just started seeing how much people were shutting down, how even in my own life, becoming an academic in many ways shut down the full range of my creativity. I realized my talents are better used elsewhere. And here we are, another episode of Academics Mean Business. Today, whoop, whoop, I have Dr. Melanie Klein hanging out with us. And uh, it's, it's a oh, guys, we have to have a part two. I don't know when it's happening, but you'll hear at the end of the episode. Uh, we just need to have some conversations because she is a fellow sociologist and community college professor who was teaching for about 18 months in her tenure track position and decided to leave. So we're very similar. And uh, we met through a community that has come up over and over on this podcast, which is Unfair Advantage with Chris Winfield. I've had guest after guest. Um, and Dr. Melanie Klein, is that's how we met. And it's pretty funny. I used to follow her on Twitter. So you'll hear a little bit about that story. But she kind of because she was, you know, in Twitter and doing that whole scene 11, 12 years ago, she's always had the seed of wanting to be a public intellectual. And so the idea to leave the academy, um, it always felt like she wasn't perfectly fitting in there either, that the that she believed that the information and the stuff she was talking with and the discussions she was having with her students belonged out in the world. And so she saw herself as that bridge. Um, so her work was in media and representation in the media and, of course, intersectionality and oppression and how that all plays in the stories and um, images that we see online and in our movies and all of that. And so she name drops here. And it's so beautiful because I just I, I use the same resources online. I use the same things in my classroom. So it was just I'm just like, oh. I like felt like I was talking to like a mirror of myself or something. It was really cool. And um, we also get into the work she's doing now um, with Mark Cardone, who's actually another previous guest. So you'll hear all about their project that they're working on together and their partnership. Um, it, it was just an amazing conversation. I really hope you enjoy this one. Um, we, we, yeah, I, it was almost as if we could have gone on for another 20 or 30 minutes, but she did have a hard stop. So that is why we had to cut the conversation because folks, I would have brought it. I would have brought all of it. Um, so yes, we will We will continue this conversation. We'll add an ellipses at the end. But uh, enjoy this one. And make sure you hit up Melanie all over social media and follow her because she does amazing, amazing work. And here we are with Dr. Melanie Klein. Welcome, Melanie. I'm so glad that you're on Academics Mean Business. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. I have been super excited all week to have this conversation with you. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So um, for the listeners, for you out there listening, um, Melanie and I had a recent conversation, what, two, three, four weeks ago, about a month probably. Mm -hmm. And we've been circling each other a while. And I've brought up Unfair Advantage and Chris Winfield probably a lot <laughs> on this podcast. 
But um, that's the community that is actually surprisingly connecting us. And it's really funny, like looking back, because I remember seeing your name come up in the group. It's a small community right now. And it's around like marketing and publicity for your stuff. And it's it's really great. And also like ne- networking and stuff like that. And so it's a small, like what, less than 200 person Facebook group or something. And I remember seeing her name come up and I was like, is that the Melanie Klein I used to follow on Twitter? And it like, <laughs> it was a thought I had. And then I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, yeah, it might be. And then I think I was like, I should reach out. And then Finally, it wasn't even Mark that connected us, a past guest. It was someone else, right? Jesse like, Johnson. You guys need to talk. Jesse, yes. Jesse Johnson, who's also a member of the community, who I should probably have on <laughs> for sure. But yeah, so Jesse connected us and I was like, oh my God, yes. Like, what? Why haven't we talked? And I'm so glad she did that. So here we are, full circle. Such a cool, cool moment. I love it. It is. And when we got on the phone, last mm. month and you remembered my Twitter account, Feminist oh, Patel. Yeah. I went, oh yep. my God. I mean, that honestly was a really poignant moment given the mm. fact that I will point out that probably 11 or 12 years ago, I had this uh, awakening in me in terms of, you know, I really have always wanted to position myself as a public intellectual. Mm. And it was right around that time that there were a lot of young feminists who were creating content. So for example, this was shortly after, you know, feministing was created as a platform. And I would look around at a lot of the work that people were doing and think to myself, oh my goodness, uh, this is the work I'm doing. And I know that what I'm, what is happening in my classroom is meant to really surpass these walls. Mm. And one of my good friends was doing a lot of social media work in terms of teaching people how to use it. Because I know 12 years doesn't seem like that long ago, but that was really around the time that people were starting to get on Facebook and were starting yep. to beginning use of Twitter. Like Twitter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we sat down and she showed me how Twitter worked, I had this very sort of clear, visceral response to my body like, Oh, oh, I understand. And I this started using Twitter mm-hmm. to really build everything that has happened now. And oftentimes mm. I, t- I tell people Twitter truly was the game changer for me and allowed me to connect with communities all over the country and not yep. all, all over the country, but also all over the world. And so yep. when I you know, sit here today and I look at all of the things that I've done and the people I've connected to, really, it was Twitter that opened up that space for me. And Mm. so it feels really fitting that you and I are having this conversation (laughs) and you remember that, like we can go back that far, that there was a certain amount of visibility that that platform created for me. Yeah. It's so interesting because I've also had some guests on um, the show who do social media for like higher ed. Um, like Josie Alquist is one. And then um, Dr. Kate is another who like actually helps academics with their social media. She's like, if you're not on there being public with your work, you know, no conferences are going to find you like it's like an active thing that you can be a part of. So but it's cool because you're old school, <laughs> like you're OG using it. And and that's how I felt I was, too. I I was on Twitter as an observer and not really a producer, um, or creator, mm-hmm. which is okay too. And um, I did bring it in my classroom a little bit, but more as look at how we can kind of learn about different communities um, in this space. Look how we can, you know, look how it impacts like news and and what we um, 
what we take in and what we consume. And I found a lot of like kind of underground podcasts and underground news as it related to, you know, what was going on with um, obviously the recession and the market crash. And so that was a big, you know, Twitter was a great source of like correlated information for me that I exactly like you said could bring into my classroom versus I don't know the other way of me trying to search for it it was like Twitter was oh this is happening in this community this is happening in this community and it was it felt like I was actually um had a feed of current things versus me having to go out and find them I don't know if that even makes sense oh it but that's does. how I was using it yeah so it was very academic to me and it is interesting now because I think Twitter has evolved and it you know may not be one of the faster growing, you know, new kind of new kid on the block thing, but I still feel like it does a really good job of accomplishing exactly what you and I are talking about still, for sure. I agree. I mean, I definitely I, I'll be really honest, I don't tend to use that as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I I give all the props to Twitter for yep. opening up that space and like you said, for me, it was also um, the same experience. It was a very personally tailored, curated place mm-hmm. for me to find not only information that I was definitely pulling into my classes, especially around social movements and social change, seeing mm-hmm. how social media played a role you know, with the various hashtags and bringing people together. Yeah. Um, that was a huge thing that I've always covered in my pop culture classes, but also finding other people doing similar work, um, finding connections, Mm, building communities virtually, and then having those virtual relationships culminate in real life. Uh, I think the first time that I met Anita Sarkeesian from Feminist Frequency, she Mm. had followed me on Twitter. This was in her early days before the whole Uh uh, Gamergate thing went down. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, shortly b- after that happened, she was coming into LA. I had never actually met her in person before. And the first time I did, she spent like three days at my house. Um, oh my God, that's so cool. And, and I've had that How happen funny. a lot of times where, you know, those, yep. those relationships from Twitter turned into very, they've been long now, deep, sustaining and meaningful relationships and communities. So I, I love that. And for me, yeah. I'll say that after that one quote lesson that I received, it just, it seemed so commonsensical to me how to use it. I was mm. really kind of surprised other people didn't. And people started asking me to teach workshops on how to ah. harness social media to create more visibility. And I always thought, like, doesn't everybody already know this? And no. <laughs> and I was like, no, actually, we don't. And so I've, mm-hmm. I've done some of that, not just for academics, but for others. But I will say, for me, it wasn't even so much that I wanted to position myself as an academic and you know, find conferences mm. and other things. For me, it was creating the bridge between that particular identity and what I knew from the beginning of my work was really my true identity, which was as a public intellectual. And mm-hmm. Mark Cordone, who has been a previous guest of yours, he and I have that conversation all the time. We have similar backgrounds in terms of social justice mm-hmm. and movement building, intersectionality, and how these are really frameworks and concepts that need to you know, extend far beyond the walls of academia and far beyond the walls of the classroom. And, you know, for me, one of my big role models has always been Bell Hooks, how she positioned Mm. herself as a public intellectual and wrote in a way and created content in such a way that, you know, the average person who is not in grad school, the average person who maybe doesn't have the privilege of enrolling in a college classroom can be exposed to those ideas. And I knew literally from the minute I walked 
into my first classroom as a professor, that this was just really one small component of the work that I was yep. meant to do. Mm. Mm, I love it. I love it. And I think that's a really, so I would, let's, let's talk about what you studied and kind of your background a little bit. And if you want to get paint a picture of what your career has kind of looked like. And then I definitely want to tap back into this idea of going outside the classroom. And it sounds like it was, it's was it been a thread in, all, in your teaching. And so, um, yeah, so start us there. Start us with your academic background, what you studied, you know, if you want to talk about your research a little bit, any of that. Absolutely. So my first sort of entree point was my sociology of women class that I took at the local community college here in LA. I went to LA Valley College and mm -hmm. had this incredible experience with my first mentor um, mm. where, you know, my life made sense in that moment when I walked in that door mm. as a mm -hmm. woman who moved here from another country, as a woman who didn't speak the language when I got here, as a woman from a, you know, blue collar background whose parents did not go to college and was also dealing with some very stark class differences in the schools that I went to as well as dealing with very specific experiences that too many women experience in terms of mm -hmm. abusive relationships, um, rape, abortion, um, shame around sexuality, mm -hmm. uh, low self-esteem around intellect and capability and efficacy. When I walked into that sociology of women class, the entire framework of my life fell into mm -hmm. a new position mm -hmm where I always say that the personal guilt and shame and blame that I had carried around thinking that, oh, well, these things that I've gone through, the things that I've experienced are personal shortcomings. They are evidence of my own mm. lack of ability. They are evidence of, you know, some sort of individual shortcoming. As C. Wright Mills, of course, talks about the sociological imagination is we now, I could see my, my personal life, yep. my individual biography is intersecting with the time and place in which I existed. Mm -hmm. And I started learning about the structures and systems that are our framework. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, you know, white supremacy, talking about capitalism, patriarchy, an ableist and a homophobic society. And so I was able to let go of that shame and move into a place of empowerment at the same time being very angry about the entire thing because I saw all of the mm. statistics that I was not alone. And so while I felt liberated, as Gloria Steinem would say, I also felt incredibly pissed off. And so <laughs> at that moment, I was very clear that this is the realm or the area I wanted to go to. So I went from being an art major <laughs> um, to oh, shifting to sociology, both for undergrad and grad school. And my areas in undergrad, I spent a lot of time studying Marxism and, you know, looking at uh, social class and class movements. I was really into the industrial revolution. That was really fascinating mm. for me. Fordism, scientific management. And then as I moved on, the real focus was gender, um, but not gender mm -hmm. alone. It was an intersectional feminist framework. So looking at how, you know, these systems of oppression intersect and overlap, looking at gender, race, and class, as well as all of the other isms. There was a lot on contemporary body image politics, as well as mm. media literacy education. So understanding how mainstream media operates and then having the ability mm -hmm. to create alternative sources of media, which, you know, that's a bridge to why social media appealed to me is like, yeah. how can we bypass media gatekeepers, uh, create our own content and 
sort of, you know, restructure or reframe the culture that we live in because, you know, we are the creators, yet we don't believe that we are. So we feel powerless. And so my work has been about reminding people that we are the architects of this and that we can recreate it. And so all of those things were, you know, kind of came together in my work. And I always like to say truly was about raising consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so if I wanted to choose one, you know, buzzword, if you will, about my work <laughs> in sociology and, you know, media literacy and feminism, all of them were really about how can we dismantle, you know, these systems of oppression externally, but how can we also deal with our internalized oppression? How can we decolonize mm-hmm. our minds? And so that mm-hmm. really became the crux of my work and was hired first as a sociologist, um, was teaching research classes on race relations, gender. Uh, I did a lot of work on interracial relationships, um, did a lot of social distance scale kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, but also did a, a lot of work on uh, media. That really became a, a big focal point of mine because yeah. of the level of saturation that we have as a mediated culture. And I yep. felt that if I really wanted to create change that was looking at racism, looking at sexism, looking at homophobia, mm-hmm. a really great path to addressing all of that it was by addressing representation in media. Yep. So that became the big focal point in all the different ways that awesome. I've worked since then. Yes, I love it. And I it's funny because that's where I think so much of our paths cross. Like I was like, I think I wrote to Mark. I was like, she's my soul sister. She's like my <laughs> fellow sociologist who is just as, you know, crazy as I am. Like, <laughs> and it just feels so like, oh, just even talking about this right now is it makes me miss my classroom, but it also it's funny because I that I was very similar. Like it was all about the media and representation. And I I would love to hear your thoughts on 10, 15 years ago when you were doing that kind of work and what you're seeing now, because I think social media has really empowered mainstream, you know, mainstream society to actually start questioning things like privilege and representation. It's been and it's because of the voices that have been marginalized and quieted for so long found these platforms to really build an audience. And I know early day, like blogging, a lot of women were blogging as men. And mm-hmm. there's, you know, a lot of people weren't talking about their sexuality in order to, you know, because um, and you brought up kind of Gamergate and stuff because being a woman on the Internet is a thing. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. And so I've noticed, though, there's a lot now we're seeing, you know, movements really, uh, you know, we witnessed a lot. I mean, we we both were teaching during Occupy, which I know was probably huge in your classroom as it was mm-hmm. in mine, and thinking about how social media had an impact. But I was thinking about, like, it is pretty different. It's not like it's perfect. But, you know, 10 years ago, it's like for me to exit the classroom when I can see what change has happened... I remember when I would, church, I still left teaching about Occupy. And, you know, we talked about how some students had no idea what it was, mm-hmm. right? And just being like, well, where were you? What do you remember? And some people were just like, I had no idea. And I was like, I can just remember how every day in my class, like teaching that semester was such a different semester as a sociologist. And it was amazing and thrilling and scary. But like now it's like it's like fading. And I was like, are there people still <laughs> teaching it? Like, I don't know. Sorry. I'm just thinking about myself in the classroom and talking about this and being like, oh, you might actually understand what I'm oh, talking absolutely. about. Oh, absolutely. No, I do. Yeah. 
What are your thoughts on like what like currently what's happening and like and connect it to maybe not being in the classroom anymore because we can obviously get to that too. Yeah. So there's a lot of good stuff there. I mean, uh, the first thing I want to say is that if I think back to 10 or 15 years ago, that we were just starting to have, you know, these mm-hmm. sort of platforms. It's nothing mm-hmm. um, like what so many people take for granted today. Yeah, they called they called Barack Obama like the first Twitter president. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So it was so interesting. And he was like the BlackBerry president, which now is just like hilarious. <laughs> well, like- and that's the thing. It's similar to to Kennedy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's very well documented, whether it's in social classes or political science classes or comm classes, that had we not had the invention of television in 1942, which, you know, became a household commodity by the time we get to the early 50s, you know, late mm-hmm. 40s, early 50s, more than likely John F. Kennedy would not have won that election. Wouldn't have been president. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. had that audiovisual yep. component. And when I think about sort of representation. I think about stories. I think about, you know, the kind of movies that are being made. I, I just, I sit yep. back and there is this profound sense of satisfaction. That is not to say mm-hmm. by any stretch that there's anything complete. I yeah. always talk yeah. about the fact that there's a difference between equality and progress and mm-hmm. the progress that we've made uh, by no means should signal to anyone that the work is done or that we should lessen our efforts. It just simply means that change is happening and doesn't Mm -hmm. mean it's all perfect, but the fact that it's Mm -mm. been a profound shift. I was on the plane coming home from Germany over the summer and I was, um, I watched that movie cock blockers with John Cena and a few Uh, others. And I remember thinking to myself, Oh, this is going to be so bad. I'm going to hate this movie. It's going to be absolutely Mm -hmm. terrible. (laughs) And Lindsay, I thought to myself, these characters are so well-developed. There is so much diversity in these female characters, the storylines, the relationships. Nice. I was really impressed. And I just thought to myself, this is the culmination of all of the incredible activists and allies and academics that I've worked with for the last 15 to 20 years who, you know, we've been on the ground, like in the trenches, completely, you know, these have been on the ground movements and now to, you know, on a longitudinal scale to see the manifestation is just so mm-hmm. profound for me. I mean, mm-hmm. we have the former, you know, one of the former editors of Feministing who's now, you know, over at Teen Vogue, Jessica Valente has, you know, is doing so many other new things. If we think about mm-hmm. what Lisa Wade has done with sociological images mm-hmm. and her work on hookup culture and the ways that this information has left the classroom and left just activist spaces, which were also in many ways, Mm. I I would say confined spaces to the masses and the use of hashtags that we've been able to mobilize. And if we even think about Oscars, so white, and we think about me too, and time's Mm -hmm. up, it's the social media has allowed this to happen. And so Yep. As a media literacy scholar and a sociologist that, you know, really is taking an intersexual framework as my foundation, I am definitely always critiquing. I am always, you know, poking holes mm-hmm. in things, but I also really make an attempt not to let all of the successes and all of the wins go by us because there have been an incredible mm-hmm. amount of wins, you know, even talking about, mm-hmm. you know, my friend Anita Sarkeesian with what she's done around, you know, with Reddit and Gamergate and bringing women's stories to the forefront. 
this has all happened over, you know, a 15 year period. And we're just kind of seeing the exponential progress in the last three years. So to some people might seem like, oh, this is just something new. It's been happening in the last two, three years, which is not true. This it's, it's sort of, you know, (laughs) began 15 years ago, I would say in earnest. And then there's Mm -hmm. been this acceleration process. So I think about high school students now who have very different representations that they're seeing. They're getting different storylines. And I see that in the classroom because even though, you know, my work has shifted in the last few years, and we'll get into that, I still feel a deep call to serve Mm. in the classroom. So I, I, I keep two on the ground classes currently to continue to inspire and to motivate uh, in those spaces. And at the beginning of the semester, you know, when I asked people to, you know, raise their hands, you know, if they knew about certain topics or issues, or even if they identified as a feminist, the number of hands had mm. exponentially increased over the last five years. Yep. Like exponential yep. increase. And so it's just a really um, inspiring, motivating, and affirming experience for me to have that these changes that sometimes can feel so arduous and draining mm-hmm. actually have reaped incredible results. I mean, the last the last year's award season was so yeah. drastically different from anything I've ever experienced. Yep. yep. Wasn't it amazing? And that that's the part that makes me miss teaching is I feel like I've lost my pulse on that. I mean, I'm out of the classroom two years now, mm-hmm. um, at, like this December. So um, like, the, yeah, my last semester was two years ago right now. And part of me feels like I've lost that as a like what you're kind of describing it as like this. Um, I don't know if it, it's not like standard, but it's like a reference point. Like I don't have that reference point. And um and it's interesting. And I guess it's just because my focus has shifted to other things because now I'm, you know, and we could talk about this, about um, diversity and inclusion and social justice in this entrepreneur space, which is a, an interesting conversation to have as well. But yeah, I'm finding that part of me misses just that on the ground thing, like how you kind of referenced it as being on the ground and being tapped into that. But But at the same time, I know my focus, it felt like that was hard for me to do both. And and I don't know, like I, I see myself going back to having maybe one or two classes, like a night class or something like that. But um, at the moment, it feels like a little too much. Um, but yeah, I appreciate hearing that. And I, yeah, that part of me just wanted to go like, oh, like, what are you thinking about things? Like just to kind of, you know, department meeting chat or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And, and I will say, you know, it, it was it hasn't been easy for me. Um, I mm. I just, you know, resigned from a tenure track job, which was presented mm-hmm. as the holy grail. And it was something that I had wanted for a really mm-hmm. long time. And I was there 18 months and had the realization like, oh, great. So I have this now, but it was very clear that that's not a, what I was meant to do. And yet at the same time, mm. I fully understood that I did not want to let go of all my classes and that could change, right? I I, I feel that that yeah. could definitely change. But for the time being, for this moment that we're having this conversation, mm. I can certainly say that for me to be in both worlds, doing this work in multiple ways is really beneficial for me, uh, feels very gratifying mm-hmm. and fulfilling. And I feel right now yep. that they're necessary. But at the same time, the pull to work with private clients, to work with thought leaders and influencers and game changers mm-hmm. to help them with their mindset, to deal with their own 
sort of, you know, blocks uh, around, you know, Mm -hmm. their sense of worth and value for certain kinds of women, Mm. maybe body confidence things, knowing that if I can work with these individuals on this level, it's going to change the content and the work that they produce and actually reach millions of more people Mm -hmm. um, has been the motivational piece to even, you know, let go of the classroom at all, because that has always been my jam. That is where I have felt the most alive and electrified. Mm. And so right now I'm, I'm definitely most of my work is in the private client realm and content creation on a, a more massive scale, but having that anchor, you know, having a few moments in the classroom each week and really coming with these young students who, are going to also take the seeds of what happens Mm -hmm. in the classroom out into all of the areas that they're going to venture into still feels really right. It feels really right. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. I I love it because they do keep me very tapped into what's happening and I can see the sort of effects and we can have these conversations in a way that might be different, let's say then on another podcast or in a different entrepreneurial space and Mm -hmm. definitely the intellect Mm -hmm. meet very deeply desires and craves these kinds of conversations, which is why, (laughs) to be quite honest, we were talking, um, you know, prior to our interview just now being partnered. And and I'm talking about like in personal life and professional life with Mark has been like the perfect union. It's like, oh, fantastic. Mm. We can go ahead and kill it in this entrepreneurial space, but our values, our sense of integrity, um, the joint work that we've done around social justice and consciousness raising and community building is a real opportunity for us to bring that into the spaces that you're describing now. How can we bring this more into entrepreneurial spaces? And so we specifically have been working on the joy revolution together where we're pairing Mm. his background in positive psychology Mine in sociology and intersectional feminism. Love it. With mindfulness and allowing that to um, educate and inspire people who have a lot of power, who have a lot of resources to refine their work, Mm -hmm. refine their perspective, grow their own personal joy capacity, and at the same time, serve their communities in a new way. And we're talking about like legacy building here and having them think about that kind of work in a new way. So I oftentimes describe it as, you know, we are working from the bottom up and the top down and we're meeting in the center mm. as a collective. Mm. Oh, I love it. Only a sociology would say it. A sociologist <laughs> would say it like that. <laughs> um, I love it. And um, and it's been so fun to witness too, just like, you know, what you guys are doing in the Joy Revolution. And also I think like what this podcast represents, like what like I've been like trying to make happen. It's like this is where like when the intellectual meets like the public and meets, you know, capitalism. Mm -hmm. Right. And like we can like with the systems that we have like right now because we're like conscious of it. And that's been what has got me through like being an entrepreneur. And I know you brought out Mark. Marks, you brought up Carl a little bit ago. And, you know, he, what I taught and when I would talk about class and when I would talk about the economy and all of that, you know, I sit back and be like, oh my gosh, I make money and I pay people and I have to do, and it's just like this mind flip. But also, it's so fun to be a sociologist because I can just like zoom out and be like, oh, here are the trends that are happening and just can like 
see it mapped out. And it's such a cool, I feel so much more in control where I felt when I was teaching, it was more, I was like explaining how the structures work. Now I actually feel like I'm impacting the structure. Oh, um, can I just pause a, on that a, thing? Yeah. Golden. Like, right. <laughs> I don't. And so I'm curious, like, because I think you're the first sociologist that I've had on the show. I'm pretty positive. And if I'm not remembering this, that's dangerous. <laughs> I think I was in someone else I have on my list. But yeah. And so like, part of me is like, that's why I've always like felt like I've done pretty good with marketing because I kind of get it right. <laughs> like we studied it and we're like, what does divergence and like disruption look like? And what is like mainstream? Like, and I can play with that and I get it. Like I see what's happening. And so watching you two create something like the joy revolution and you're like academic flags are like waving high, but you're selling that shit out. You're charging money for it. And like, people are loving it and there's research behind it. I'm like, this is what the space needs like no more of this like making stuff up or like just like pretending that just because you did it that's how everyone should do it which has made me bonkers so anyways I just have been watching being like this is so rad just seeing and so you unifying I think is what made it more like real like oh like two people running you know a potentially a business together like Mm -hmm. we were talking about but like also yeah just this program and i was like dude that's dangerous and i'm like i need to partner up well that's exactly why we're doing it because it is totally trans yeah it's it's subversive it's transgressive you know yeah we we talk a lot about the sort of you know audrey lord talks about the void of transgression and the place of creation and how we can subvert these paradigms Mm. and just to go into what you were saying, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of things that landed for me. (laughs) Um, But one of them is that this is based, this is deeply rooted in, you know, research and Mm -hmm. a long history of work that we've had. This is not just stuff that's made up, which is sometimes I think entrepreneurial spaces, same within the yoga world that I've been part of for so long, feel like stuff is just sometimes made up and thrown out there. And that's Mm. really concerning to me if it's not, you know, rooted in deep research analysis, statistics, theories, and then, you know, then the application comes from that. So given our academic and activist backgrounds, like we're completely in alignment with having deep roots to what we're creating, having, you know, a solid foundation. And at the same time, understanding that the spaces that we moved in through for so long, um, as, as, electrifying and as as exciting as it was for both of us. And now, yes, I am speaking for both of us because we've had many conversations (laughs) about it as being academics, working with students, working within that system, Mm -hmm. you know, being on the ground activists, there was so much constriction. There was so much negativity. And listen, I want to be clear. I'm all about anger. I think that anger Mm -hmm. is a catalyzing emotion. I think it's essential. And if we can harness it, it can be incredibly productive but I just started seeing how how much people were shutting down, how even mm. in my own life, becoming an academic um, in many ways shut down the full range of my creativity, um, mm. even thinking about a lot of the stuff that's happening within the realm of social movements where people are kind of attacking each other and tearing down yeah. the walls of the movement. We wanted to offer something that was going to empower and mobilize, but from a different entry point. Um, And that is increasing our joy capacity. How can we use that as a way to Mm. create both personal liberation as well as collective change? And that's always also been the crux of my work. Like, you know, I have combined mindfulness practices 
with, you know, the intellectual consciousness raising, pointing out that they need each other. We can't just have mm-hmm. an intellectual understanding if we don't have the embodied sense of that new truth mm-hmm. and if we don't have an yep. application of that truth. And so we've done the same thing here is we're really using sort of an integrated system, um, you know, a whole person integration. For me, I bring in the embodiment, the mindfulness. If people knew how to do this, they would do it. But how how can we actually reprogram not only our minds, but our bodies? And I'm going to get a little mm. woo. I'm going to say our energy fields, all of the things yep, that yep. we've collected. And so our goal is to offer this not as empty navel gazing, like I want to be happy. It's like, no, mm. what, when, when you can come into this place of joy, oftentimes in my chantra communities, I talk about when we come into the flow of pleasure and we can have that be a vehicle, we can expand. And a lot of the work I've done has been around empowerment from coaching, consulting, and my, my, mm-hmm. my you know mentees and my students, same thing. Now empowerment can come through joy, we can become larger, we can become become bigger, we can hold more, we can contain more, we can feel more of a sense of balance and rest Mm. while being mobile, which makes this all much more sustainable. And then the end goal for for both of us has always been community building that our personal Mm. liberation is not just for us, our personal liberation is for the good of the collective. Yep. I love it. And with Joy Rev, it's true. I mean, we have, uh, we've, we're finishing our beta. We're offering, well, maybe well, I said it publicly now, but we're, we're offering uh, <laughs> more next year. But I will say the, the next one in January is going to be a very nice. uh, hand curated, selected cohort uh, of influencers to maximize uh, the work in their platforms. And then it's going to be offered in other installations after that. And in many nice. ways, we don't want this to just be some sort of an exclusive mm. commodity. So yep. we're looking at how we can bring this into create curriculum and programs for nonprofit mm. organizations. Yes. How can we bring this into the corporate world? You know, there's so many different ways that this is happening. So that when I say from the bottom up and the top down, I mean that truly that there yep. are many different hubs or I could say different spokes to this, you know, one particular piece that we're doing And it's exciting because to us, it just feels like the natural evolution of everything that we've done personally. And Mm. then when we came together, it was just so obvious. Our own joy capacity increased so Mm. exponentially that it was Mm -hmm. something that we understood very clearly we needed to share that this was the next. This is big. Yeah, yeah, this was the next installation of our work. Mm, I love it. It's so exciting. It is super exciting. I love this idea too of of how we can imagine where it's heading. And it's like, I love that energy and flow that, yes, I very rarely got in academia. So there were moments in my like dissertation, right? Mm-hmm. Like, where you have that big moment where you're like, oh my God, I can see all of it. I feel like it happens way more frequently as an entrepreneur because we get to generate it in our own timeline and in a way that feels like well, there's just just so much opportunity too with like every person you meet and every event you go to. And like you said, it it is the creation comes out. It's almost like unleashed. And in academia, it's I wouldn't say it it, it definitely doesn't not exist. It's definitely there, but it's funneled or walled off or siloed or made and and we try to find time for it, but all these other things take over. And you use the language electrifying. That's how I used to feel too. Yeah. When I'm in the classroom teaching, lecturing, doing an activity, whatever, electric, but everywhere else that I had to be, right? All other versions of myself that I had to show up as on campus, it wasn't that. 
not that being an entrepreneur means everything's perfect and amazing. It's just more like things are coming through me and that electric energy I feel more often. So the idea that you guys are harnessing something like joy, right? And and taking us to the place of when we feel those moments of of electricity and joy and excitement and happiness and those lovely things that we feel what I feel when I think of joy. Um harnessing that for productivity and moving forward. And because I I also think too, in like activist work, there's so much burnout mm-hmm. because there's so much giving and not in this this conversation about depleting and and you know feeling that energy of it feels like I can't change anything and I'm just going to keep working that's that's a problem that's a big problem and so I love what you guys are doing like you're you're doing it in the business world and then there's this larger vision because this union I think of like the sociologists and the psychologists of course I love that too <laughs> but this union like is like oh yeah this is like because the institution would it's a lot less likely that you're going to partner up with someone. I mean, the inter-department stuff happens and it's happening more, but it's still not quite there, right? And so in this space, you can just do it. Like there's no APA like coming after you or ASA coming after you or whatever. You're not answering to anyone. You guys are doing your work out in the world publicly. Yeah. I mean, you know, you were saying about that uh, electrification. I mean, I, I'm, mm. I'm getting ready to have some lightning bolts tattooed on me after the first of the year because I oh my use God. that so emoji good. all the time with my clients that it's like, ah. it, it's about becoming electrified basically yep. becoming alive, allowing, mm. you know, whether you call it Shakti, source energy, universal mm-hmm. energy, whatever it happens to be, but just to become fully alive, that mm. that is always what I felt in my classrooms. And I think that's what mm. my students um, were most touched yep. by is the ways in which yep. they became alive. And when I went mm. into, you know, my tenured position, and there were these other spaces I had to occupy, I felt that being diminished. And I realized, oh, this, yep. that my talents and my energy and you know my areas of mastery are better used elsewhere that it would have been a waste yep. of my talents and skill sets and what i bring to the world to be in those meetings and in, i know having those conversations i wanted to stick with exactly what i know i do well and that is to bring that out in people to offer mm. that in people to model that for people so, so there's that piece, which made it very clear that I needed to pivot in yep. my work. And, you know, just on a more personal level, you know, Mark and I reminded each other that this is about the joy of being alive, that we only mm. have so much time. And, you know, he mm-hmm. and I spent so many years just on our work with our clients, with yep. our students, you know, and then as parents that I really felt like there was this one area of my life that was, um, you know, atrophied and coming mm-hmm. together with him lit up this, this place that had been truly dead for so long. And when it opened mm-hmm. up my full capacity for creation through that, mm-hmm. you know, synergy of joy just blew me up even more. And I would say within a couple weeks of us being together, Joy Revolution just naturally came to fruition. And in such a short period of time, it's like the course has been created. We're working on a book. Yeah. We have all of these, you know, things happening that this is what we want to offer others. Like 
at the end yep. of the day, what do you truly want to create? How do you want mm-hmm. to feel satiated and fulfilled and not as some, you know, empty and kind of feel good mantra, but truly in the most spiritual and the most physical and the most deepest mm-hmm. emotional um, sense that you can imagine is about this is the source of our power when we become fully alive and fully self-actualized and we bring it into our communities, into our workspace, whatever it is that we're doing. And Mm -hmm. I certainly know that my mission is to have more people come to that place because then we, Mm. as a collective benefit from their joy, from their sense of, you know, being fully alive. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it is just incredibly beautiful to be able to do that, like you said, and not have limits, not to, not Mm. to edit anything or to question anything, but just to go like, this is, this is exactly what's meant to be and let's make it. And then we have this limitless zone of creation and we can make it look exactly the way we want to look. Um, Mm. And I loved academia. I still do to a certain degree, Mm -hmm. um, just in the role that I play now as a continued adjunct or in my case as an associate faculty member, th- I'm good with that. It, it, it gave me yeah. a wonderful framework for my life. It's allowed me yep. to, you know, inspire and be inspired by thousands mm-hmm. of students over the years. And I have so much gratitude for that, but it just was clear that the message and the work that I've been doing and as that work evolves had to, I felt compelled to bring it out to a much wider Mm. audience. Mm. I love it, Melanie. Um, So I know we're wrapping up. So and and I feel like we could end on that. But I do want to ask like one more question, just to kind of drive it home for folks listening, especially if they're I think with, you know, how inspiring your interview is just thinking about this idea of questioning where the joy is coming from and um, what life is looking like for us. So if someone is kind of in academia right now and is listening to this podcast and is kind of like, man, I want what she's drinking or I want want to hang out with uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. this crew, right? What would you say to somebody who's maybe thinking of starting a side uh, business or or like going out more publicly? What would be your advice for them? That's a great question. And it's going to be uh, a little general, maybe a little esoteric. Sure. Um, and the reason that I offer it this way is because part of the work that I do in you know the empowerment coaching is I have no prescription, right? I don't want mm. to give anyone a set curriculum or you know a certain outcome because that would be enabling. And for me, empowerment is about yep. finding our authentic truth and having the courage to proclaim it, you know, in the world. So just want to kind of you know, give that as a precursor. And for me, this is about the embodiment piece of it. It's like, I Mm. really encourage people to come into some kind of a mindfulness practice regularly enough that they can begin to create more space within themselves. Because if they can Mm. create more space, they have greater access to the truth of their desire, to the truth of who they're meant to be and the work that is supposed to flow through them. That if we are constantly inundating ourselves with messaging, you know, um, Mm -hmm. not taking the time to be quiet, to be in nature or to just be in that space of flow, we're not going to be able to have the clarity of that answer. And so Mm. I would say the first thing people should do is really come back into relationship with themselves by turning inward and being quiet. I think that's excellent. That's not, it doesn't feel esoteric at all to me. Like it's oh, true. It's like real. Good. <laughs> Legit. Um, <laughs> 
legit from Dr. Melanie Woo-hoo! Klein. Thank you so much for hanging out. I, dude, I think we need to do a part two. And I don't know what it's going to be on, but we're gonna we're gonna riff on a topic or something. I'm I don't so know. <laughs> glad you said that, and I didn't want to be the one to say that and be like, so have me back. Can I be a, like a repeat guest? But I really, <laughs> right. I want to be. I think that there is a lot yeah. more here, and I'd be happy to offer mm-hmm. it. In fact, if there's a bridge. Um, I feel like there's a really clear bridge here for people who are maybe listening, who want to get more into the mindfulness component and the embodiment. In fact, the next book that I'm working on is called Embodied Resilience. Mm. And I think that for me, the biggest thing that changed my relationship to academia and activism was having the embodied component, the mindfulness component. And to me, they always went together. In Mm. my book, Yoga and Body Image, I talk about how, you know, feminism freed my mind, but yoga freed my body. And there was, they were one in the same. They were both about raising consciousness and I needed to have the intellectual framework and I needed to have the practice. Um, They could not be separate. Mm. So I think that oftentimes when we, you know, are in intellectual spaces and even a lot of activist spaces, these pursuits and these things become very heady. They become very intellectualized and we lose sense of the physical container that we're in, we lose sense of the embodied wisdom Mm. that is coming through, or we doubt it, or we dismiss it. And so for me, I would love if it appeals to you and your listeners to come back and talk more about that That bridge Mm -hmm. and coming into the fullness and the richness of our whole being. Yeah. I think that's great because I think, yes, in entrepreneurship and academia, I mean, so, mar- so many places that we exist in society are, it's, we're so divided um, in both yes. in that. And um, it's about bringing that back together. Yes, yes, yes. Um, where can people find you? We're definitely going to have all your links, but where are you kind of hanging out right now on the interwebs? Instagram is my jam. Ooh, that yes. is where I hang out the most. Um, so I'm at Mel Mel Klein. That's M-E-L-M-E-L-K-L-E-I-N. Obviously, that'll be in the links. Uh, my personal website Perfect. is melaniecline.com. And then if people are interested in ser- some of the uh, intersections between mindfulness and empowerment, um, I'm also the co-founder of the Yoga and Body Image Coalition. That's all over the place. YBICoalition.com, YBICoalition on Instagram. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm pretty much hanging out all over the place, but I prefer <laughs> Instagram. So I would love Perfect. to hear from people. People can get some of my content there and as yeah. you know, other things, you know, come out, including this podcast, I, I always share all the of latest course. in that particular space. Sweet. So go find her, go follow her right now. Awesome. Yes. Well, thank you, Melanie. I know you have to run. So we will have part two. Um, we will get it on the calendar. Take care. Thanks for coming by.